0: welcome to the jimd podcast i'm your host james nurse and i'm seriously considering the wisdom of committing to a fortnightly release schedule in the last two years we've talked about everything from the first described inborn errors right through to newly discovered disorders and plenty in between if you're enjoying the podcast you may also like our short form podcast featuring articles from our sister journal jmd reports you can find this by searching for jmd podcast wherever you like to listen but before you do that Be sure to listen to this latest episode on reproductive carrier screening and inherited metabolic disease. Well, hello there. So after speaking with a cornucopia of Northern Hemisphere guest, it's always a pleasure to return to a land down under to welcome Dr. Edwin Kirk to the podcast. Dr. Kirk is a clinical geneticist at the Centre for Clinical Genetics in New South Wales and the lead author of the paper, Reproductive Genetic Carrier Screening in Inborn Errors of Metabolism. The voice of the inborn errors of metabolism community needs to be heard. Edwin, thank you for joining me.
1: G'day and uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Um, So you begin by highlighting that reproductive genetic carrier screening has been offered in some shape or form for half a century. Um, I wonder if you could briefly explain what you mean by RGCS and catch us up on the story so far.
1: So we're talking really about screening people who don't necessarily have any family history, people from the general population. And the idea of that is that the great majority of people who have a child with a recessive or X-linked condition do not have a family history. Uh, that's less true for X-linked conditions than it is for or recessive conditions, but it can be true for them as well. So the first time that most people find out that they're a carrier for one of these conditions is usually when they have an affected child. And we know that most people who have an affected child with a severe condition take steps in subsequent pregnancies to avoid having another affected child. Of course, that's not universal. People make their individual decisions based on a a host of different factors. Uh, But it makes sense to think that if we can give people information before they have an affected child, that that in general allows them more options than uh, if you wait until there's a child born with the condition. So the idea of carrier screening is to provide that information and to provide the option of having it and to give the people choice when they are found to be carriers. The the background we're talking about, as you say, goes back half a century and it begins with screening for initially sickle cell disease and thalassemias uh, and almost simultaneously screening for Tay-Sachs disease began. So that's where the inborn errors comes in. Uh, And what we have now is... Uh, a raft of different, mostly commercial offerings. There's, uh, there are some exceptions, uh, particularly in Israel, there is a government-funded screening program. But generally speaking, you're talking about commercial offerings with panels of typically hundreds of genes these days, uh, and that inevitably includes multiple different genes associated with inborn areas of metabolism.
0: I mean, you've mentioned these big panels with hundreds of genes. It sounds like, you know, potentially we could achieve, for some conditions, what's already been managed with with Tay-Sachs, I
1: think. Yeah, so there has been a a community-led screening program for Tay-Sachs disease in Australia for more than 25 years now. And in that time, no couple who've undergone screening have had a child affected by Tay-Sachs disease. Now, it should be noted that that is in a particular community. So that's in the Ashkenazi Jewish community, where the range of variants associated with Tay-Sachs is, is very well understood and where a screen that only covers a small number of variants picks up the great majority of all carriers if you're to screen the general population you may not achieve quite such good results but you can still potentially detect the large majority of carriers and
0: can we do that with other conditions with these hundreds of genes that we're now able to screen for
1: We can do that with other conditions, but our ability to do that varies quite a lot. And the reason for that includes technical limitations. So there are some genes that are just difficult to screen. An example of that is GBA, the the gene associated with Gaucher disease, which has a pseudogene that covers 96% of the gene and makes sequencing very difficult. So there are reasons why you might have trouble actually identifying the variants in a particular gene. But more broadly, one of the big challenges is that for a lot of variants, it may not be possible to be sure that the variant is pathogenic. And that comes to one of the issues that we also talk about in the paper is the issue about what you report when you do carrier screening. And most people, and we are certainly of the view, that you should limit this to reporting variants where the information is useful or potentially useful to the couple. In other words, variants that you can classify as likely pathogenic or pathogenic. Now, there are lots of variants that are out there that are pathogenic, but which it wouldn't be possible in the absence of an affected individual, to make that determination. And that actually is one of the main limitations on our ability to successfully report pathogenic variants for couples, is just a lack of information. And obviously, that's something that's changing with time, with improving databases, with more and more medical literature coming out, but it remains a a fairly significant limitation.
0: Because obviously, if we had this in an affected patient, we'd be doing functional studies, but you've got no role for functional work in a... In a carrier, or or is that? Uh,
1: Realistically, uh, in carrier screening, you usually can't. So the three of us who wrote this paper, uh, myself, Martin Del Tickey and Nigel Lang, are the leads of a large carrier screening project that's just wrapping up in Australia at the moment. And we had a rule that in general, uh, if we saw a missense variant that hadn't previously been reported, that there was no way of getting that to lightly pathogenic. Uh, there was one exception, which was a variant that involved the PMM2 gene, and that's some collaborative work that is in a paper that I think may have just been accepted. But it was a variant that, where the uh, residue, amino you know, acid residue, was at the active site of a variant, and there are a number of other reasons to think that it might be pathogenic. And with some trepidation, we reported, it, and subsequent functional studies demonstrated a complete lack of activity with the variant. So. But that was something that happened fairly early on when we were looking really hard at a whole lot of things and it's not something you can do in any kind of scalable way and it's not realistic to think that that's something, an approach that would be reasonable when you've got large numbers of samples coming through. So I think as a general rule, no, there's no real role for those kinds of studies if you're doing a genetic sequencing-based assay and reporting information that you can confidently cause as the like pathogenic or pathogenic for a given variant.
0: Well, we do love CDG works. So we'll have to look out for that one. I mean, as a complete aside, I spoke with another Australian group about sort of neurocognitive impairment in carriers for certain lysosomal storage disorders. Is there a risk when you're doing carrier screening that you're going to get some significant additional findings or have you just tried to ignore that problem altogether?
1: <laughs> well, of course, it's nice to ignore the stuff that makes your life difficult, if you possibly can. Um, uh, Look, I guess the major issue actually relates to X-link conditions. So, yes, there are uh, some special cases, as you described, for, for recessives, but but it's actually quite common that carriers or well, heterozygotes for X-link conditions can be affected themselves. You think about Fabry disease, for instance, in the inborn aerosphere, uh, where if you identify that uh, a woman is a heterozygote, there are reproductive implications, which is why she had the assay done in the first place, but there may also be quite significant implications for her own health. And we think that that's an issue that relates to how you uh, do the pre-test counselling and information provision. And we were quite careful with with our project The consent and information process is online and it it includes quite a bit of information about the possibility that you might find something that's relevant for your own health. Not related to the inborn errors, but one of the particular examples relates to cancer risk. So, for example, there are uh, some conditions that are recessive but for which there may also be an increased risk of familial cancer in the heterozygote. We deliberately chose not to, and this is probably getting right outside the IEM space, we deliberately chose not to include BRCA2 in our panel because we didn't think that we could adequately consent patients for the possibility that both of them would be found to have a pathogenic BRCA2 variant, even though biallelic BRCA2 variants are clearly a cause of Fanconi anemia, which otherwise meets our criteria for inclusion in the panel. So yeah, it's, it's, it's an issue. It's less of an issue uh, for the IEM than for some other conditions apart from Fabry, and less of an issue for recessives than for excellent conditions
0: yes i'm sorry for taking you off on a tangent i we come back to <laughs> kind of, that's all right well it's a good tangent to go on uh, if we come back to the the paper itself so some of the other difficulties you identify are conditions where there is a genomic change but there is perhaps some controversy about the level of you know of what the disease phenotype is so there's biochemical perturbation there's a genetic change yep. but the disease phenotype is more uncertain how do you handle those
1: Well, uh, we do a lot of phoning a friend. There are certainly a lot of difficult variants we run across, and and the inborn errors basis is an area where it happens quite a bit. The way I think about this, uh, and it may be a, a really gross oversimplification, is that for a lot of enzymes, there's a lot of redundancy in the system. So you typically need to have a reduction way below 50% before you have a phenotype. It might be in the level of one or two or 3% might be sufficient. You know, once you get up to 5% of enzyme activity for many enzymes, you're protected against having a phenotype. And I'm sure there are exceptions that people can think of to that. And there are some variants where you're just skating on the edge. And there are probably other factors, other genetic factors, environmental factors that determine whether someone who has, say, a null variant on one allele and has one of these edge case variants on the other allele may have a phenotype in early childhood, later in childhood, in adulthood or not at all. And in particular, there are variants in the GALC gene, especially with Crabbe disease, which are more common than you would expect for a pathogenic variant in at least one population. But, which are clearly capable of causing a phenotype in some individuals. And those yeah. certainly pose a real challenge, partly because you may get to a situation where you think having phoned a friend, asked the experts. In this case, for example, we we spoke to Joe Orsini in New York who was wonderfully helpful when we were looking at one of these variants. We've got a biochemical geneticist Janice Fletcher in our team. And what you do is you get the expertise, you look at the biochemical evidence. You look at the population data and eventually you have to make a decision as to whether a variant is reportable or not. It's very hard for a lab not to report a variant once you've classified it as being likely pathogenic. And, And I think once you get to that stage and you've got reports of childhood, severe childhood onset phenotypes, then you go ahead. But one of the sort of complications that arises when you've got this kind of exercise you're doing is that there may be other children in the family already. And so reporting the information is not only relevant to future pregnancies, but it raises questions about the status of the children already in the family. So it can be a a fraught area and very difficult to deal with. And you could
0: be on a clock as well, because if you've got a family who come to you already pregnant, you've got a time frame you've got to work in.
1: That's exactly right. And the reality is that time and time again, when people look at this, two thirds of the people who come for carrier screening are already pregnant. And there are a number of reasons for that. One of the main reasons is that in most places, more than half of pregnancies are unplanned. I think the figures for Australia are about 50%, which is pretty good by world standards, but it still means that if you think of carrier screening as part of pregnancy planning, those people are already taken off the table as people who might have preconception screening. And then it's just something that even if people are offered it, they don't necessarily think it's a priority until they're pregnant. So it doesn't matter how hard you try, you're going to wind up having to do this screening during pregnancy if, if you're going to achieve a benefit for the maximum number of people. And as you say, that definitely means that you've got to be able to turn the test around in a reasonable time frame.
0: One of the other conditions you specifically highlighted, which is relatively common, is MCAD deficiency. It seems relatively simple if you know it's there we we can be more aggressive in terms of our birth management plan. Is it as simple as that?
1: So the question about MCAD really comes down to what your criteria for inclusion in the screen are. The basis on which we chose conditions was that we were looking for conditions where we thought that a typical Australian couple might take steps to avoid having a child affected by that condition. And obviously there's quite a lot of subjectivity there because who are the typical Australian couple? How do you know what they might do? We had a, a, a layperson who was on our gene selection committee and we had ethics input and uh, counselling input. Uh, we, had, we had quite a large group who were working on this. And our initial thinking was that because the outcomes for MCAD deficiency have been so good since newborn screening uh, and because treatment is generally not very burdensome, particularly as children get older, that it was probably reasonable to think that newborn screening was going to pick it up and that we probably didn't need to include it. But the counter argument is that even with newborn screening, there have still been some rare cases of deaths in countries with newborn screening and good healthcare systems. And uh, that can just be bad luck. It can be timing. If your newborn screening card is collected on day three or four and it's Thursday and it gets to the newborn screening lab on Friday maybe by Monday you're a week old and you've already collapsed if you're, if you're unlucky. I mean, obviously most babies with MCAT don't collapse in the newborn period, but some do. So that was one counter-argument. Another that was put to us was that uh, some of our colleagues had families who had accessed PGT in subsequent pregnancies, and there was a view that perhaps others might as well. So uh, when we put the list together for McKenzie's admission, we initially didn't have the AKDM gene on, and uh, we added it later. So I guess from our point of view it was an edge case, but other people who've got different criteria might not see it that way at all and might think that it's very clearly something that should be in or out depending on the criteria you choose.
0: There's a podcast coming on MTHFR deficiency and talking about the incredible neurocognitive outcomes when you pre-syntomatically start betaine. I don't know whether that would be on your on your list, but these are children who, if they are, you know, if you wait till they're symptomatic, are going to be more problematic than if you diagnose them antenatally and start them on treatment at
1: birth. Yeah, MTHFR is on our list, and I guess another criterion that we had was that if there was a condition where early intervention soon after birth might make a significant difference to phenotype or to outcomes then we would include that. And the the examples that particularly came out involved congenital adrenal insufficiency where plenty of babies that are born seem to be fine and then have an adrenal crisis sometime in the first weeks that can be lethal. And that's a condition where it's very straightforward to treat when you know about it. And, yeah, I guess some of the inborn errors come into that category as well and we don't have perfect coverage with newborn screening for for those conditions. So that was certainly a consideration in selecting genes. I
0: suppose the other question is what we do with this knowledge. You talked about families wanting to know about continuing the pregnancy, but if you do pre-implantation diagnosis, that's IVF cycles, which are Costly, emotionally, physically taxing, and termination is not easy either. It's going to be a, a, probably a second trimester termination, which is harrowing, and that's for the families that will accept termination and the countries that will allow it. Given the climate we're moving into in, in an international setting, how do we how do we use all this knowledge?
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair question, and I think realistically we have to accept that there are positives and negatives to carrier screening. It's not without risk. Um, There's a risk of false positives and false negatives, partly because of the difficulties of variant classification that we've already discussed. And one consideration is that if you take a couple who are both carriers for a recessive condition, even if they're very straightforward, very severe condition, and they have two children, it's actually more likely than not that uh, they won't have an affected child. But we don't know which ones they are, of course. Uh, so there's a kind of a built in possibility that you might do some people some harm by medicalizing their experience. And we, we think that the potential benefits outweigh that potential harm, but that's a judgment. And I think one of the things about this is that as with a lot of screening assays, and I think certainly, for example, for non-invasive prenatal screening for Down syndrome and so on, there's a danger of routinization and people uh, being handed a form and uh, and said, oh, you need to have this test uh, to check if your baby's going to be healthy and without the adequate counselling and information provision. And we, we very strongly feel that there should be something that should be done in the context of good information provision. And, of course, people don't necessarily have the time to, to do that face-to-face, one-on-one, uh, but at least giving people access to information so they can make an informed decision. Because it's not for everyone. And it's certainly the case that some people, given good information, choose not to have screening, and that's absolutely fine. And we actually think it's much preferable that people make an informed decision, whichever way that goes, than that they get handed the form and told to go and have the test, and then afterwards have to face the consequences of that information.
0: So... I was going to finish by asking, there's a classic film from the 90s featuring a scientist called Professor Ian Malcolm, played by Jeff Goldblum, and when he talks about the resurrecting of the dinosaurs, he said scientists were so busy thinking that they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. This is a call to arms, this paper, for the IEM community, both for clinicians and families. How do we engage around the discussion of whether we should be screening families for genetic diseases where there is no prior history of, of note? Where do we go next?
1: Oh, well, it does feel like the horse has bolted, um, and and you are speaking to someone who's pro screening, of course. So, <laughs> so if you're asking me, I've
0: not, not brought in the BBC balance here. No one is uh, going <laughs> to shout you down.
1: So, um, obviously, there's a lot of variation in different jurisdictions as to how this is approached. So, we've got some Dutch colleagues we work with, and in the Netherlands, it's illegal for people to order a commercial carrier screen. So that's one extreme. And on the other extreme, you have what's effectively a Wild West situation in a lot of the world where you can order a screen without any kind of prior counselling and without any guarantee of skilled return of results and information provision. So as you say, a call to arms, I would like us to do better. And the us, I think, is the screening community. I think the Inborn Errors community are a resource that those of us who are involved in screening should draw on. And that should be at all stages. It should be at the stage of choosing what to screen. It should be at the very interpretation. And then it should be at the return of results. And that's particularly true because the meaning of many of these results is changing. We've got a whole host of different treatments coming through, many of which might look to someone who's not familiar with the field like a cure, but many of which unfortunately are not, that have real complexities to the outcomes that are associated with treatment. And you really need to tap the expertise that's out there and there's enormous expertise out there to deliver the best results for patients. So that's what I would like to see happening, that that this really important area of medicine is properly considered when people are designing and running screening programs and that they should be designed and run, that it shouldn't just be you set a shingle, offer a test and away you go. Uh, We'd like to see a deliberate approach to this.
0: So Pandora's box is officially open we've just open got a business definitely <laughs> got to manage it rather than rather than fight it yes I mean, that's brilliant thank you so much um for that if you'd like to read edwin's paper please click the link in the podcast description or go to the general website and search for reproductive genetic carrier screening and if you'd like to hear more from us just search for jmd podcast wherever you like to listen edwin thank you so much for your time this evening it's been my pleasure and thanks for listening until next time goodbye